I fully believe that people inherently want to do a good job. They want to bring their best selves to work. And it's a, and it's a leader's responsibility to get them there. This is the Leadership 480 Podcast. Hi, leaders, and welcome back to the Leadership 480 Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Alms. And today's topic is the thing that most of us try to avoid as leaders, which is resolving conflict. For a lot of us, this is our least favorite task and the one that's most tempting to try to just avoid and maybe sweep under the rug until something blows up in our faces. But I think we've all had a story where we tried to do that and it's never a good idea. So today we've invited DDI leadership expert Chris Helm to talk with us about some of the strategies leaders can use to resolve conflict. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Beth. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've coached and facilitated leadership development for hundreds, I don't know, dare I say thousands of leaders over time. How have you seen leaders react to having to manage conflict on their teams? Yeah, so this one comes up time and time again. It's one that I often find people are really, really curious about. And it shows just how uh, how anxious and nervous people can can get about these conflict situations so we train and we coach and we practice and prepare for those moments but somehow it's still never really something we look forward to you know we don't look forward to having to get involved in resolving conflict be it one that we're involved in or even one that someone in our team's involved in yet it's a really important role for for a leader if if i think just the other week i had uh, someone approach me about how to deal with a situation they were experiencing between two team members whose disagreements had just started to escalate and go mm-hmm. beyond control so what had seemed to be a fairly private conversation at first had started to spill over into team meetings and and kind of the effects of, of those unresolved conflicts were spilling over and, and really hurting team morale when other people were, were feeling the effects of it. It was sapping the positivity in the team. So it was obvious that um, to me when, when I was talking to this leader that they, they'd adopted a bit of a, an, a void or if I'm, being, uh, if I'm being kind, I might say a, a wait and see strategy. Uh, sometimes you, you might get lucky and find that wait in, the wait and see strategy works. Um, other other people find themselves pulled right in and they go right to the other extreme and they jump straight to mediating over really simple disagreements or negotiating or worse than that, ending up dictating in those situations. So we frequently see these two ends of the scale from abdicating to, to dictating, neither of which are effective ways to productively resolve a conflict. Oh, that's so interesting, Chris. You know, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll mention that one of the things that has always struck me is that I have conversations with just like family members who, and I have a couple who are retired executives that talked about, they actually loved the moment they stepped out of leadership and it was because of conflict on their teams. And I mean, you're talking very high level people in the company and they were excited to not have to be leaders anymore because they didn't want to manage these interpersonal conflicts. So do you see a major when you talk about that scale of you know how people react to it, do you see big differences, whether you're working with this as a frontline leader or mid-level or executive? Like, like, do you see a lot of that change as the level changes? Um, that's a really good question. So I see a lot change uh, depending on how good how good that leader is at dealing with the conflict. So when you start to train people on this, you know, it's, I think it's a fact that not many people really enjoy 
the situations of conflict, but you can learn some skills around it. Um, I've seen I've seen conflicts escalate, you know, just as much at an executive level as I have at a frontline level. It, it, and, and typically, you often see these things of um, people either try and dismiss it or they try and crush it down or see conflict as something that's wrong. Uh, you know, when I look at conflict, I think it's there's nothing wrong with conflict when it's managed well. When someone in the room is just going to say, hey, that's an interesting point of view. Can we get a bit more curious about that uh, and start people, uh, you know, start de-risking this and start getting people curious about other people's points of view, making people feel valued for having a different view on something rather than those differences being something we need to disagree about. I really like where you're going with that of, you know, there's almost a healthy level of conflict on your team, you know, and is that possible? Do you, can you start to look at healthy conflict or does it always mean that there's something kind of wrong with you as a leader? If you've got people who are fighting on your team? No, no way. A, a leader really shouldn't beat themselves up about conflict emerging in, in, in the course of work. This is just going to happen. If we, if we try and, if we try and push it down or make people hide it, we're not going to get good outcomes. And um, seriously, when I, you know, when, when we explore this more, having zero conflict is not a realistic aim for a team. In, in fact, it's probably unhealthy. Uh, having zero conflict and a high performing team really isn't realistic because conflict is natural. We're human. We interpret the world in, in different ways to each other. We overlay different value sets into things and people have complex intentions. So it, it, for me, it's obvious when we put a bunch of people together with different experiences, motivations, abilities, values, backgrounds, and we ask them to achieve difficult goals, we're going to end up and we're going to need a level of disagreement and debate. Otherwise, we're not going to solve complex problems. So the differences we see between normal teams or underperforming teams versus high-performing teams is that high-performing teams have a way to work through those differences and to work through those differences in a really productive and respectful way. So uh, I guess one thing that is consistent across those high-performing teams is that this resolution path is often instigated by the leader. So you won't, I mean, you won't see that, that leader making grand statements in a team meeting or a huddle. They'll be doing lots of their great work in the background, coaching others how to resolve the differences for themselves, helping others to take ownership and understand how, how they're playing into to, to the disagreement and how to find their own path out of it. Eventually, when you, when you get a leader like that, others start to mimic that behavior and you see the teams around them asking the questions, leaning in more to where other people are coming from. So you really, you know, you don't just manage to to get the to get to resolve a conflict, but you manage to leverage that that benefit of difference and diversity. I I was just going to ask you about diversity really Chris because you talked about, you know, some of the reasons people come to conflict differently with, you know, they have different backgrounds, experiences, they're different points of view. How do you feel like conflict um how does it go hand in hand with diversity in a positive or a negative way? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, a level of diversity is going to lead to, it's, a, it's going to lead to differences in perspective. Now, how we handle those differences in perspective will, will really dictate whether that ends up in an unresolved, unproductive conflict or something that we can all learn from and come up with a better solution than those individuals on their own would, would ultimately come up with. So there is a really strong piece in here about, about respect, 
Um, and about that, you know, that old friend of ours, empathy. If if people can lean into a situation more, understand where someone else is coming from, and actually show them that they understand them, that person that person will feel like they're on the same team. If we push away because of the differences or simply state positions, we'll, we'll stay really far apart from each other because nobody's nobody's actually going that step further to say, hey. I think I understand you, or I'm not sure I understand you, but I really want to. If we're simply stating our positions, essentially you're stating to the other person, I don't want to understand you. I just want you to accept my point of view. So I, I like that concept. And, and as we, you know, it's almost to the point of, um, you know, if you don't have any conflict on your team, you might not have enough diversity. Everybody's thinking, agreeing, everybody all thinks the same way, which is never really a good outcome. But as a leader, how do you know when to kind of leave things alone? It's time for, to let people work it out on their own. They're going to they're gonna work through this. And when do you know it's gone too far? It's time for me to step in and do something about it. Yeah, it's interesting. So a- anything's possible here. So uh, with a conflict, it might resolve itself or it might get worse. I, what I'd say is that one thing's always for sure. As a leader, you don't want to be leaving this to chance. You don't want to be thinking, maybe this will sort itself out. I'll just see where it goes. So you've got to get a little bit closer to the situation when you see the signs. The more you the more you look for this, the more you start to spot it. The more you analyze conflicts that have happened and you play back, well, what was, what was actually that crucial point in this? Where could I have helped? Uh, where could I have helped someone to take ownership of this and, and to step into it themselves? The more you realize that those moments are way earlier than we typically end up stepping in. So I remember being part of a project team early in my career where there was some clear unresolved conflict between two individuals. We, we were really busy working long hours with tight deadlines. So the situation it was kind of ripe for some disagreement. But mm-hmm. this went further than that. Uh, two of those team members, they frequently disagree. And they started to express really strong frustrations with each other in front of the rest of the team. And on occasion, that would be to the point of exchanging insults. This just created a hugely, hugely toxic environment. So when I think of the hours that were wasted in conversation, whenever they left the room and everybody else just <sighs> breathed and let it all out mm-hmm. and we had the conversation, we were having the conversations about them rather than with them. And another time, you know, we were all on the team, quite a lot of junior people. So we made our leader aware of this, but he was a guy who was working across a lot of projects. So we were left feeling like he didn't he didn't see the problem. He wasn't feeling the problem and, and he was really busy elsewhere. So as a result, we felt like we needed to do something about it. And, um, and one of my teammates, uh, a lady called Sarah, just came up with this great suggestion and, and and just said, well, why don't we why don't we take turns in going for lunch with them? You go for lunch with one of them, and I'll go lunch for lunch with the other, and we'll just have a little conversation and and find out what's going on for them, and also help them understand that that we've noticed and that there is an impact on the rest of the team. Um, and I'll be, I'll I'll be honest, it wasn't a hugely sophisticated approach, but it was what we mm-hmm. had at the time, and we stumbled across actually something that that kind of worked well. So, you know, we we'd spend most of those lunch breaks, just listening, listening to what was going on for them, asking a few questions, helping them, um, helping them come up with some ideas for, for how they work through it. And we noticed that the behaviors started to change, the, the situation started to de-escalate a little bit because I think they felt, they felt listened to, 
and it was maybe even a little relief that that they actually understood that other people had noticed and we called it and said there's a you know there's an impact on team performance here none of them wanted to do that you know neither of them wanted to create a, a negative atmosphere for the team and so one thing i realized and um uh, and realized from that situation was that even if you don't know the correct way forward the, the you know the absolute right way forward doing something is way better than doing nothing so you know i would i when i reflect on it i was incredibly impressed by sarah's actions at the time to just take ownership and show more leadership than our than our nominated leader in that team to be able to just step in and and start doing something differently at the end of the day um if you want something to change some someone somewhere has got to do something different and uh, and sarah was the catalyst for that with with strong leadership behaviors about actually let's just go and listen to these people um that's such a great example of sort of the informal leadership uh you know helping to diffuse that situation um especially when it sounds like you were all kind of in a in a pressure cooker together um when, as you were going through that conflict so as you look and you've seen and worked with leaders who are struggling with type many different types of conflict what are some of the things the external factors that start to cause conflict on a team that maybe you could address as a leader? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. So there's lots of things that can lead to the, the conflict. Um, so uh, typically they're gonna arise through miscommunication and a misunderstanding if we, want, if we want to generalize. The underlying problems or, or catalysts might already be there. You think about scarce resources, limited time, conflicting priorities. Differences in, in personality and approach, differences, uh, cultural differences. I'd say none of those are the actual reason why the conflict occurs. They're just a simple sort of difference at the start of a chain of events. Um, another thing to realize is that the conflict doesn't just emerge as a full-blown shouting match. That's often when people start to perceive it a lot more. It starts to go from the, the smaller contained environment into the, the wider team and business environment. The signs or sparks are there way before that, when people are unable to find a way through their disagreements. Now, I often think of it like when I say the signs or the sparks, it makes me think of the, with sparks, like sparks on their own don't really do anything, but when there's some fuel for those sparks, then, then, then they can really take light and they can become something big. So, uh, and these come from the behaviors of those involved. For example, for example, in, in the, previous situation I was talking about, there was a, a distinct lack of listening. People just stating positions and disagreeing over their positions. There was a real lack of empathy and unwillingness to understand the other person's point of view, unwillingness to compromise. These are, these are things that, that when the fuel, these are like the fuel that when poured on that spark, they, they ignite. So, you know, you know, we've all heard people talk about biases. Um, we often think, you know, we know that some of our biases, we've got to become more aware of them so that um, so that we can make better judgments on a, on a daily basis. And our biases are in play here again. As human beings, one of our earliest instincts that we develop is around spotting danger. Um, and so this, you know, instinct bias, the words, are, the words are often interchangeable, but this instinct leads us, often leads us to confuse different with dangerous. So mm. left unchecked, we start to fall into the trap of rejecting things, things that we haven't had a hand in creating. 
where still we can then overlay our own value framework onto the people's decision, other people's decisions and judgments. And that's going to lead to all sorts of unhelpful assumptions around why others are doing what they do. If I just look at uh, other people doing what they do and I, and I start to apply my own value framework to that, well, I, I might start to think that there's something wrong going on or that they've got, um, they've got nefarious interests and, and I, should, uh, I should actually mistrust them. So that's going to start. That's going to get in the way of people getting curious about ideas and lead to other people shutting them down. So actually, we've got to understand that our instincts are telling us, "Watch out for the danger, close this down." Whereas if we can override that and start thinking, "Okay, this is interesting. This is different. How can I learn something from this?" and start reframing that situation, we can step forward with some better behaviors. Oh, that's so interesting, especially um, about how bias starts to to send our brains a little bit haywire about why people are doing things and the assumptions we make behind what, why they're doing those things. So when you're looking at this from the leader's perspective, how do you start kind of addressing the situation, helping people start to see um, the other person's point of view without necessarily taking sides, things like that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. That, you know, I always see as a leader, this is your key moment, isn't it? To, to be able to step in and provide some value. So we're recognizing unresolved conflict is going to lead to a whole load of constrained thinking, mistrust, lost pro productivity. So you've got to do something. You've got to act. And, and I often think the first thing to do is that simple act of acknowledging it, letting people know you've noticed I mean, who, who doesn't like it when someone just says to them, I've noticed, actually shows that you care and, and that you're, you're looking to help them find a solution. So you notice it and, and make sure you're stating that you're keen to help them to resolve it. That's, that's like a real catalyst moment that actually sets them on a, a journey towards resolution. I often think when you hold the mirror up to someone in such a way, it can often be a relief because they can get so caught up in it that it... It, it really does. It, it creates those stress responses and they're not thinking about it. They're not thinking about the wider impact. They're just pushing as hard as they can to get to the outcome they know is right, even if it's not right. Um, I guess the risk here when we, when we acknowledge and when we show our support, there's a risk here that you can, um, uh, you can get pulled in and that they can just think you're going to sort it out for them. And, and you probably could. Like most leaders could step in, they could have a good co a few conversations, and they could make decisions for people. But there's a lot more at stake than that. Um, I think sorting out other people's disagreements doesn't really, doesn't really help them learn to do it for themselves. And as a long-term thing, it's just going to suck up a whole lot of time, a whole lot of your time every time there's a simple disagreement. And you've got more things to be doing than that. Um, I guess this is the first stage, showing that acknowledgement. When we look at the next step, they're going to need to find a way through. The fact that they haven't found a way through yet probably means they, they haven't worked that out. So mm -hmm. you're going to need to help them find those solutions. Now, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, of looking, at, looking at the resourcefulness of others from a coaching perspective. And if we go into there with the belief that they have the resources to, to, to sort this out productively for themselves, we'll always get to a better outcome. So this is where coaching comes in and helping them work out how they're going to play that conversation themselves? How what role they're, you know, what role they're occupying in, in fueling this conflict? 
what where they actually do align what goals they're trying to meet that they share and, and actually recognizing all those points of alignment can just help them create the a, a much better way of working together there's um there's a concept called uh called perceptual positioning that i've always quite liked in these situations so people talk about helping others see each other's point of view mm-hmm. there's also a really powerful thing about helping them see another person's point of view so we got the two people caught up in the disagreement the uh, and and all this di- uh, you know this this disruption and if if you get them to leverage that third party perspective just asking how might how might an, a third party onlooker view this situation they can often you know really start to elevate themselves outside that conflict situation and recognize that you know there's no fault there's just a there's just a difficult situation and they can come up with different ways to to solve it that's such a helpful perspective you know taking the leader out of the position it's certainly not in the position to say you know Chris, here's what Beth was thinking, and I'm I'm the mediator who's interpreting everybody's feelings for them to explain them to you, but to say, why do you think this is happening? What do you think an objective observer would say about this situation? What would they see here? Um, really powerful way to kind of de-escalate some of the emotions here, too, of <laughs> not not you or me or, or someone else, but like, what, what would an observer say? I really like that a lot. So are there times when <laughs> you just aren't going to be able to resolve this. I mean, when do you know is, you know, something big has to change or someone has to leave the team? Have you seen that happen often or is it typically the case that you can get past this? Yeah, so you know, I have seen it happen. This is a, this is a difficult one. I have seen it happen. I often think if someone if it's going to get to the stage where someone's leaving the team, there's often other reasons that are fueling it. So Sometimes, you know, it might be that it's just the right time for that person to to leave the team. We're seeing way more in organizations of matrix structures, people people moving between project teams and 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 things being quite fluid. So we see this more and more. Um where I've seen it the most is is during uh, an organizational uh, a restructure or, you know, or in post-merger integration, change of ownership situations where the fundamental purpose of that team has shifted. Yeah, there's still an intact team for the moment. Or they've got a whole lot of new people coming into the team and there's just a bit of positioning that always happens as we're, as we're reforming as a team. So what we realize is that there's been a change in purpose, uh, uh, maybe a, a difference if we were to revisit the values of that team or what's needed to make that team successful, well, things have changed. Yet the values and the drivers of those individuals, well, they haven't changed. So all of a sudden, people are being asked to hit new goals collaborate in different ways with different stakeholders and it just gets really confusing so before you know it people are pushing back conflicts are arising on the 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 simplest of things partly because a change has been forced on them so i i i fully believe that people inherently want to do a good job they want to bring their best selves to work and it's a and it's a leader's responsibility to get them there and i've certainly never encountered anyone who you know who actually turned up to work trying to do their very worst each day that's that's a situation <laughs> i've never encountered um ultimately you know you've got to say a leader's got to stay close and especially in those kind of situations articulated where there's been a lot of change stay close to people to understand what's going on for them finding the right alignment for the team the business your customers it's not always going to result in perfect alignment for each individual in that intact team so helping people see that 
and work through it in the right way is it is a critical part of a leader's role. Um, when I've seen this managed really well, it's been a real, it's been done with a lot of mutual respect, and nobody's been setting off with huge conclusions about what the outcome is. But people along the way have uh, have come to the conclusion that being part of that team is maybe not the right thing, and they've had good productive conversations about well, what would be the right thing. So everyone's everyone's got a lot of awareness about the situation. The conversations are happening, and they've got the tools to deal with it. And and that's that's ultimately what we want. Uh, obviously, you could imagine the the situations where they're not well managed, and you end up with that that conflict just staying and festering within the, in the team and you're never going to have a high performing team that way so uh, i guess just reiterating that role of the leader to get close to the situation open it up acknowledge it have those conversations and and really coach people to to make good decisions for themselves uh, that's great chris and i think getting to that heart of of the why um, these things are happening, that whether it's really something else that's affecting it, whether it's really change that's causing people to feel this way. There's so much more um, usually at the root of this conflict than just two people not getting along. So last, I have a question that I ask all of our guests on the show. Can you share with me a moment of leadership that changed your life for good or for bad? It can be something that inspired you or said, well, I will go. I I want to never do something like that. So I'll do things differently. Oh, that's such a huge question. I see we've, we've gone through the small talk. We're ready for the big talk now. Um, <laughs> uh, you know what? There's. I think of it. I've just been so privileged to work with so many people who who have really cared about leadership. So whatever discipline they've been in, they've um, they've really had a, a care, a respect for for that discipline of leadership and. Um, some study it through their through their work. Some study it, you know, as a um, as 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 the actual job that they they do. Um, one stands out, uh, and it's uh, and it's actually outside my professional domain. Um, so so I'll give you this one. It was it was actually uh, I used to do a lot of martial arts. So I started training in I think judo when I was nine. I did karate after that. I, Muay Thai, a whole lot of other things. And I used to love martial arts. Just really good um, for anybody listening who's ever thought about doing it. It's just an ama- amazing, uh, amazing release for your for your mind as well as uh, as well as a great physical activity. Um, but I trained in quite a few disciplines over the years. And coming to up to my late twenties, I refound my original karate style of shukukai. And this was a style I'd I'd done from the age of eleven through to about um, eighteen, nineteen. And 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 I'd I'd loved it, and I'd I'd graded up to quite a high level. Um, but it had been over ten years by this point before I'd actually done a grading for for a new belt. And I was having a conversation with my uh, my sensei at the club I trained at in in London, and he was talking about me doing my my next grading, which was going to be my my third damn black belt grading. And I was a bit nervous about this. And I distinctly remember saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to train hard over the next six months and I'm going to see if I'll be ready to take it in uh, in a year's time. You know, feeling pretty confident that I knew how tough it was, but feeling pretty confident that I give myself a year's run up. I can, I can do this. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to train hard and I'll be fine. And I just remember him looking me in the eye and saying, great, you're going to grade in three months then. And this moment, um, it really struck me. Uh, because I was totally disarmed by this, I was expecting a little bit of a negotiation, um, 
you know some something something else in there but mm-hmm. he he just fixed me with this look and and what i realized in that moment is he'd shown so much belief in me where i hadn't shown it in myself i thought i needed a year he just told me he knew i could do it too he just knew i could do it quicker he probably need, knew I needed a bit of a nudge that I was, you know, I was, I was talking too much. I was, I was saying, yeah, give me a year. And I just needed mm-hmm. this nudge. Um, and he was creating some tension to make things happen. So I could have pushed back, but he, he'd introduced that little bit of tension there. And it was tough. Uh, and it was really tough training for it. And, but I got there and I passed it and I was super proud of, uh, of achieving that. But it's something that's stuck with me ever since, to, to look to create challenge for others, show them you believe in them, and support them along the way. Oh, that's an excellent story, but it does make me realize I started this conversation all wrong. We should have been talking about resolving conflict through martial arts the whole time. <laughs> <But> <laughs> train your whole team in martial arts and they can, they can figure it out that way. Thank you so much, Chris, for being here today on the Leadership 480 podcast. It was a pleasure. Uh, Thank you so much, Beth. And thank you to our listeners who took part of their 480 minutes today to be with us and remember to make every moment of leadership count.